what works and what doesn't. Understanding what works. What works for me. Understanding your own business to know what works. What works for you. This is What Works. When does over-delivering become overcompensating? You put a lot on the line when you start a business. No matter your vision, whether you plan to build something massive or a simple structure to do your best work, entrepreneurship is an act of vulnerability. The stakes are high, whether those stakes are financial, social, personal, or some combination of all three. Every entrepreneur attempts to hedge this bet a bit, to balance the risk and compensate for uncertainty. Otherwise, you balk at the promises necessary to get a business off the ground, to close a big client, or build your product. And so the maxim becomes under-promise and over-deliver. I'm Tara McMullen, and this is What Works, the show that explores navigating the 21st century economy with your humanity intact. Over-delivering compensates for the risk, the uncertainty, the sky-high stakes of entrepreneurship. Over-delivering can also compensate for a lack of self-trust and a lifetime of being told, either implicitly or explicitly, that you have to make up for some aspect of your identity. When I set out to have my own business, I, I wanted to actually create engagements where over-delivery was, was baked in. Uh, I think that that's who I am as a human being. I get a lot of joy out of even what I say quite explicitly to people who are considering working with me is that I want to run alongside you in your business. And I do want to do that. And I do. And the question I was wrestling with when we were chatting is, but how much of that is reasonable? That's sales coach Allison Davis. I reached out to Allison at the end of last year and asked what sticky subjects she'd like to come on the podcast to talk about. She told me that she'd been thinking a lot about over-delivering, generosity, and when it all becomes too much of a good thing. Now, this is something I think about quite a bit myself. One way generosity comes up for me is when I'm asked about knowing how much content should be free and what content should be sold. Another way it bubbles up is how reticent I am to offer additional support or training after an initial engagement. It feels easier to just be available free of charge. And Sean and I often talk about over-delivering when it comes to our podcast production agency. He often jokes that he's setting a bad precedent by going above and beyond in the way he edits an episode. Or we get into the weeds about what we've actually promised a client versus what he fears their expectations are. Producing a podcast is such a subjective activity that no matter how detailed our proposal, there always seems to be some gray area about what we've actually promised and how much we expect to over-deliver on that promise. So yeah, I think most of us, especially women and marginalized people, get stuck on over-delivering in one way or another. We value generosity, but our actions can look a little more like entrepreneurial martyrdom. Real quick, before we dip back into my conversation with Allison, let's define over-delivering. I'm defining over-delivering as creating an imbalanced exchange of value by virtue of the seller providing more than is paid for or agreed upon. Say that again. 
Over-delivering is when a seller provides more than is paid for or agreed upon, creating an imbalanced exchange of value. And as I got thinking about this more, I also think about how I was conditioned as a worker in this society. And I ran myself through a little exercise. It was like, where does this come from? Where does this belief that I have to over-deliver come from? And yet I would protect my clients, you know, wholly from, from doing that or thinking they had to do that. I spent 17 years on sales teams for publishing, media publishing companies while they were managing their decline. And over-delivery was the last gasp. You want to buy the office furniture? I'll sell it to you. What do you want? I'll do anything. And so I think that there's a bit of it baked in because when you are coming up in an industry that is dying, you are scraping to stay alive. So how do I undo 17 years of that? <laughs> yeah. I mean, in that scenario, it strikes me as like over-delivery is survival. And it's a, it's a survival mechanism rather than a sustainable way of working. You nailed it. That, that's exactly right. It's a mindset shift. It's a, it's a luxury as a business owner to not be in survival mode and to actually be in thrive mode. And that piece of my mindset it has not made that shift. And, and that makes sense after 17 years, right? So th these things take a while to, to unwind and undo. So I remember when I moved from Burlington, Vermont, you know, to New York for my first, you know, big city, big job. And I didn't know what the heck I was doing. And one day I got an email from the head of a, a small advertising agency in New York. And I opened the email and I was like, what is this? And he had my name, Allison, over the word delivery. And he had my name under the word promised, meaning I under promised and over delivered. That is weird, dude. <laughs> it is super weird. But also, do you want to know what I did with that email? Did you print it out and post it somewhere? Sure did. Right at my desk. Wore it like a badge of honor. All right. Time for a little feminist theory breakdown. We know that women are socially conditioned to act as caregivers. Not all women like caregiving or excel at caregiving. I certainly don't. But very few of us escape the message that caregiving is our responsibility. What if the tendency to over-deliver is actually a manifestation of that caregiving responsibility? What if over-delivering is the labor equivalent of a mother's self-sacrifice on behalf of her child or partner or even her parent? Women, as well as marginalized people, are often funneled into caregiving roles at work. Human resources, legal counsel, office manager. Our professions come to be defined by our conditioning toward caregiving rather than our actual skills or strengths. Further, as feminist philosopher Kate Mann explores in her work, fulfilling our caregiving responsibilities helps us to avoid the enforcement meted out by misogyny. Stepping into caregiving roles allows us the relative safety of sticking to the script. This dynamic can play out in work relationships between people of any gender, because it's so easy to fall back into the default programming of patriarchy and misogyny. Or, as another feminist thinker, Sarah Ahmed, put it, I began to realize what I already knew, that patriarchal reasoning goes all the way down to the letter, to the bone. 
I had to find ways not to reproduce its grammar in what I said, in what I wrote, in what I did, in who I was. Now, I've mentioned this on the show before, but I really want to draw it out in this episode because it's so relevant to the conversation around generosity, over-delivering, and overcompensating. Kate Mann describes two different classes in our culture, the human beings and the human givers. Human givers provide the labor required for human beings to simply be. That labor, of course, is reproductive, caregiving, maintenance types of work. Human beings, in their freedom from that type of labor, are able to pursue their interests and ambitions, to disrupt and create, or at the very least, leave the home and bring back a steady paycheck. Now, I saw this play out in real time on Twitter a few weeks back. A guy tweeted that essentially he was proof that it was possible to have kids, work a full-time job, get eight plus hours of sleep every night, and build multiple revenue-generating side projects. You can probably imagine the response. A number of women asked him about his wife and how much he contributes to caregiving. He claimed they split the work right down the middle and that his wife also works a full-time job. While I find that incredibly difficult to believe on its face, I know there is so much more going on below the surface. The responsibility of caregiving is not a list of chores or even hours spent with the kids. Caregiving is, in my experience, a state of mind, a state of mind that holds a complex web of preferences, needs, obligations, anxieties, hopes, and dreams all together at once. This man's assertion that it's possible to fit all of his activities in during the day reveals that he is not the one holding that web in his mind. Because caregiving is not merely a logistical puzzle. It's an emotional, intellectual, and social puzzle. The human giver takes on that puzzle so that the human being can be free to do more quote-unquote valuable things. I see the same class dynamic play out in entrepreneurship. There are the entrepreneurs that position themselves as human beings and, with varying success, build an infrastructure to support that. And then there are the entrepreneurs who assume the role of human givers, taking on a caregiving role with their customers or clients. Unsurprisingly, this can create tension, even toxicity. I've seen this play out among team members, between client and service providers, in small groups, and in whole communities or audiences. There is often an unstated power dynamic at play that can lead to harmful assumptions about who owes another what. I see many business owners desperate to step into the role of human being. They want to be liberated from the constant worry about everyone else's needs and prioritize themselves for once. But at the same time, what's often expected of them from customers is that self-sacrifice at the core of caregiving. It can be real social conditioning whiplash. One minute, you're the self-assured CEO who routes all communication through an underpaid assistant, and the next, you're dealing with a complaint about not being accessible enough in your Facebook group, which you sold based on access to you. Over-delivering seems like a way to avoid this mess, to compensate for the discomfort of being in a position you're not really accustomed to. But often, 
over-delivering merely entrenches these tired class dynamics. What does it mean for an individual in relationship to be neither the human being to whom care is owed or the human giver who owes the care? What does a working relationship look like in which both parties offer care and maintain boundaries? I don't know about you, but this type of relationship construction feels utterly foreign to me. In the last five years or so, I've finally seen relationships where this mutuality is modeled, but actually achieving that in my own relationships? Well, that remains elusive. My reflex is to try to figure out as quickly as possible what the power dynamics are so that I know my place and then do my best to uphold that role. Even if you don't wade through the same social pathological muck that I do, my guess is that we build our business relationships in similarly fallow soil. This is what cultivates our predilection for over-delivering. Whenever we assume we're in a position of lower status or lower power, we tend to overcompensate by over-delivering. And the person of higher status has learned to expect that over-delivering, that over-giving. Consider Allison's story again. She's trying to prove herself after landing in New York City. She does some work for the head of a small advertising agency. He's the one in the power position. And so when she goes above and beyond to prove herself, he rewards her by pointing out her over-delivering and in the process sets an expectation of what he finds valuable fail to meet that expectation, and she wouldn't earn his praise and could possibly even lose the job. That's the thing about over-delivering and human giving. We become hyper-responsive to its assumptions. We internalize over-delivering as an expectation rather than a true above-and-beyond action. Anything less than over-delivering risks negative consequences. Here's how Kate Mann describes this in an interview on the Forever 35 podcast. Another metaphor that I sometimes find helpful because so much misogyny is internalized by girls and women, as well as non-binary folks, um, is to think about it as kind of a shock collar, the kind of thing that has been used historically to keep a dog behind an invisible fence by shocking them when and causing them pain and suffering when they're trying to go beyond a certain boundary that's artificially demarcated. So this idea that you are keeping people on a leash and also causing them to self-censor and self-silence. As Allison and I continued to untangle over-delivering, we looked at one practical way we might choose to resolve this in a business. You know what I'm hearing is that there's like a decision matrix here. <laughs> you know, it's like step one, am I over delivering? Step two, am I enjoying the hell out of that? And and do I need to call it over delivery or is that just what I offer in my scope of work and my engagement? That's number one. You got, yes, I got that from you. Just, so there's that, right? And so it's like, if, if I give a lot, am I enjoying it? Is it fueling me and feeding me or is it depleting me? And then to say, well, if the answer is yes, I really enjoy running alongside my clients, being that, you know, on-demand sales leadership person that really is there uh, for this duration of time, then how much of it can I handle? And if it has to go from four clients only to two at a time, well, great. But guess what? Those two that get me have to make up the spread of revenue from the other two months. 
And you know, the only way that's going to happen is putting the over delivery in air quotes, scope of work and explaining the value. The reason that it is important also for me to actually scope that into the work and present it clearly is so that if someone gets a, a scope of work from you and it, it's not in it, right? It's about taking care of our fellow business owners. If that, if, if, if I may be so bold as to say that, because things that we deliver that are out of scope actually hurt the other person down the block doing the same amount of work that is not delivering it in that same way because they apparently don't have the, the emotional scarring. We're going to level the playing field for each other. That's why I think it's, it's good to be not only transparent about what we're charging for the work we do, but really, really what is in that scope of work, not just what's in those bullet points. This is that funny territory where like we need to learn how to take care of ourselves in new ways. And learning how to take care of ourselves in new ways must also be about helping others take care of themselves in new ways. That's a key sort of component of rethinking the neoliberal narrative, the capitalist narrative, the all of these things that have taught us to just care about getting what's ours or taking care of ourselves um, or self-reliance and re reworking that. So I, I really appreciate you bringing that in. All right, let's get to the heart of what we're really talking about when we talk about generosity and over-delivering in a business. We're saying that delivering on what we've agreed to is not enough. If we feel compelled to over-deliver, then we don't believe that merely delivering is acceptable. And that seems not right. Not only is it problematic in terms of self-efficacy, I think it might be fundamentally dishonest. I have to go back again to uh, learning how to sell in an industry that was scraping itself up off of off of the floor. You know, so if the thing, oh God, it's exactly it. If the thing you're selling isn't enough or isn't attractive enough to buy, what can you add to it? And the only thing to add was again the office furniture or all of me, whatever you need from mani-pedis and dinners to maybe an extra free advertisement here and there. Like, you know, I got to unlearn that crap because it's not serving anybody. When you and I both deal with so many people who are selling their support, there isn't another ad spot you can throw in. There That's isn't right. the office furniture. The only thing that can be added into that bundle is more of ourselves. Yep. I've certainly fallen into that entrepreneurial personal brand pattern many times. How can I make this more enticing? Well, I'll add a weekly Q&A session, or I'll add an email support, or I'll create a Slack channel for direct access to me. How do I demonstrate the value of what I'm offering before someone buys? Well, I'll make video after video, putting my heart and soul into as much free content as I can or I'll do a webinar where my personal struggles become leverage for making a sale. At the heart of this is a very genuine, authentic desire to connect and provide value. I don't question that at all for myself or for others. And yet, just because that authentic desire to connect is there doesn't mean it's right, and it doesn't mean it's not harmful. 
When my personal support or story becomes part of the sale, becomes part of what I promise to deliver, I risk losing a sense of who I am outside of that transaction. If I'm always molding my availability and care into the form others need it to take, how could I not lose myself? In the episode I did on emotional labor, I talked about how sociologist Arlie Hochschild said that one of the potential consequences of offering up extreme amounts of often uncompensated emotional labor is self-alienation. You lose sight of your own needs, your own feelings, even your own sense of self. And for me, this ties directly to Kate Mann's argument that human givers aren't allowed to be in their own right. They exist to serve human beings. And I feel very because when I think back over my entire life and, and think, how did I survive? <laughs> how did I thrive? How am I here? You know, it's inside. I didn't have it that bad, but you know what I mean? Like we, you know, um, it's because I am able to lead with empathy. And when you lead with empathy and you want that genuine connection, if you learn that a way of, of responding or a way of being around another human is going to help them feel more comfortable, it, it is then going to bring me joy to know them, to understand them or the situation or the environment that I find myself in. That brings me joy. Uh, I remember a conversation back in um, my early 20s with my, who is one of my very best friends to this day. And my goodness, the self-righteousness and bravado of our early 20s. He had me and he said, you know, I don't know who you are. <laughs> you are this person when you're at a work event. You're this person here. What is, you know, of course, we're all, I mean, I, I, I love him dearly to this day. And you know what my response was at that moment? You're lucky to know all of them. <laughs> so why, you know, so where did that go, right? Like, lucky to know all of these people. <laughs> so true. All of those different people Allison describes, all the different people I could tell you that I've been in my own life and work, we've developed those identities to compensate for feeling like we're not enough. Sure, Allison had that whip-smart, cocky reply in her 20s, but deep down, my guess is that she'd internalize the expectation that she'd be exactly who someone else needed her to be. I know I did. And when we become what someone else needs of us, we're sending ourselves the message that who we are isn't enough. And when we carry that into our business dealings, it's no wonder that delivering doesn't seem like enough. There is no precedent of equal exchange for many of us. More is always demanded of us, if not by our partners or children or even our old bosses, than just by the persistent cultural narratives that we exist in. In this paradigm, a balanced transaction, value for value, will always trigger that overcompensation reflex. In her book, Living a Feminist Life, Sarah Ahmed argues that we need to really examine the concepts at work in how we think and behave. She writes, quote, Concepts are at work in how we work, whatever it is that we do. We need to work out sometimes what these concepts are, what we're thinking when we are doing, 
or what doing is thinking, because concepts can be murky as background assumptions. Concepts can be murky as background assumptions. So what assumptions have you made of what's expected of you as a business owner? What assumptions have you made about the ways you or your work isn't good enough? Here's the revolutionary idea I want to share with you. Transactions are supposed to be balanced. Exchange should be based on equal terms. Both customer and provider contribute comparable value to meet each other's needs. The more we incorporate that balance into the ways we do business, the more we can realize gains outside of work too. What would it take to provide your service or offer your product in a balanced way? In what ways are you over-delivering and maybe overcompensating that you could either eliminate or price for? What guardrails could you put in place to ensure that delivering is enough? And where else might the reflex to overcompensate be at play in your life and work? Big thanks to Allison Davis for exploring this sticky subject with me. Find out more about Allison at allison-davis.com. That's Allison hyphen davis.com. Is there a sticky subject that you're thinking about? Maybe a big, scary question that's lodged in your brain? Reach out and let me know. You can find me on LinkedIn, Instagram, or Twitter and tell me all about it. I'm planning to take about four weeks off to give myself the space to do the final detail work on my manuscript. Oof. You might see what works pop back into your feed with a mini episode or two, but I'll return with regular full-length episodes in May. Till then, keep doing what works. What Works is produced by Yellow House Media. Our production coordinator is Lou Blazer. Our production assistant is Emily Kilduff. This episode was edited by me, Tara McMullen, and Marty Seafelt. Our executive producer is Sean McMullen. What Works is recorded and produced on the ancestral homelands of the Susquehannock people. The Yellow House is located on the unceded land of the Katunaha Nation. <laughs>